navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 42 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. In this episode, we'll recap the Microsoft Build 2020 conference. And joining me to do that is our Datascape regular and Microsoft expert, Warner Chavez. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the show. Hey, how are you, Chris? Happy to be back here to talk about all the cool stuff at the Build show, a very different Build show this year. Yes, indeed. So, you know, as probably obviously you, but everybody, uh, the listeners know, like many conferences, Microsoft opted for a virtual conference this year. What did you think of that versus past years? Well, I think it has its pros and cons, right? The pro is that made it virtual, it turned into a tent conference, right? Microsoft didn't gate it for people. They just gave refunds to everybody that had registered and they opened up the conference on their website to just be able to check out virtually whatever you wanted to see on the sessions remotely. So that's a huge pro, of course, because I mean, save yourself the flight, save yourself the hotel, the registration fee, and you get the learning for thousands probably of people worldwide, right? So that's a huge advantage. And this is, you know, what we talk about all the time about democratizing all this technology, information and learning. The con, of course, is that, you know, you're not in person, so you miss out on all the social interaction, which is a lot of the value of the conferences, right? The networking and meeting people that you would get otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how how they'll do that for for other conferences, such as Inspire, where the real meat or advantage of the conference and even purposes is networking. And, you know, I've had fantastic conversations in elevators, taxi cabs, you know, lunch and things. And so I'm curious to see how the technology vendors try to can come up with a way to recreate that networking and interaction. Yeah, that is definitely the hardest part of doing these conferences virtually is that there is no easy or nobody has come up with a killer application of how to reproduce not even a fraction of that social value virtually, right? So we'll see. I mean, uh, necessity is the father of of innovation. So maybe somebody will figure something out. Yeah, well, maybe this will push some of the telepresence style technologies. Maybe VR will make a comeback. Yeah, maybe. All right, let's dive in. There were a lot of updates. Let's start with Kubernetes moving into Azure Arc is now in preview. Yeah, and this is for the listeners that might not be familiar with it. I'll just give the 10-second pitch for Azure Arc. is basically Microsoft's revamped hybrid strategy where you will be running Azure software in commodity hardware in your data center, and you will just leverage Azure and Microsoft's control plane software to have a single pane of glass and point of control and configuration endpoints for on-prem resources as well as your cloud resources. So Azure Arc is being put in preview right now to also manage Kubernetes clusters. That is the announcement for build. There is already a preview out for managing Windows and Linux servers, so VMs, and there's also an agent for physical. And they also have something that we mentioned before in the podcast is the Arc data services. So you will be able to manage your data state enabled through Kubernetes containerization. Uh, You'll be able to manage your data state using the Azure 
SQL database bits and even not just the SQL database, they're doing this for the open source bits as well. But then Microsoft will control everything in terms of backups, patching, the new features and all that stuff. It'll just get updated in your cluster as Microsoft pushes it from the cloud. And of course, if it's disconnected, it's not like your whole cluster is going to go down or anything like that. You will have still a local management endpoint for the cluster as well. So this is a evolution of this strategy is now Kubernetes is, is under the umbrella in preview. And this is also something that I was reading about that it's kind of enabled by this strategy of doing hybrid this way. It's for example, very interesting for, let's say you're a managed service provider, right? Azure has this concept of the Azure Lighthouse, which basically means that you get to give yourself permissions in different subscriptions, and then you can integrate all the alerting, the monitoring, and the policies between all those different subscriptions that you manage through this this subservice called the Azure Lighthouse. But then let's think about, you know, if you have Azure Arc and you integrate that through Azure Lighthouse, it means that as managed services, for example, you could manage all these resources on-prem in your client's on-prem state through the Azure portal and the Azure policies and the Azure monitoring, et cetera, right? So it opens really interesting scenarios. And I'm using the term managed service provider because I'm thinking, you know, I, I think a lot about managed services, obviously. But if you're like a really large IT uh, organization that you're managing different data centers around the world, I mean, this software could have value for you as well, right? So very interesting. We'll see how this goes in the future, how it evolves. Yeah, it's an interesting move. I mean, you know, Azure and Google are making similar moves about uh, cross-platform and on-prem kind of hybrid management to be curious to see about the market adoption and to see if people adopt it or kind of opt for some other tool that's for their on-prem resources. Yeah, I feel like right now it's early game for all of them. Then most of them are in preview. Google's Anthos is still, you know, not not widely adopted either. Yeah, well, I think we need to let this play play out a little bit longer before we can see really where everybody's going. I mean, all of this right now, at least the Azure Arc, is it's all in, in preview as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, definitely. Let's move on and talk about Azure Stack Hub. Yeah, so Azure Stack Hub is the renaming of what we used to call Azure, just Azure Stack. For people that are not familiar as well, is it's basically, this is an actual appliance that you buy to put in your data center, right? So Azure Arc is not a hardware that you place in your data center. Azure Arc is a software and it will control your on-prem resources. Azure Stack Hub is actual hardware and appliance that you can ship into your data center and it will give you the equivalent of some, not all, but the main Azure services deployed on-prem through this specialized hardware, right? So that some people will say that's also a hybrid play it's kind of true but it's delivered in a different way than azure arc right it's, it's actually a hardware appliance purchase it used to be called just azure stack now it's called azure stack hub so there's a bunch of new stuff announced here at build for the stack hub the actual appliance first is that they have this new experience for the fleet management so i guess they have more than one client now that has enabled Stack Hub in multiple different data centers. So you will be able to manage them all together through a single pane of glass. There is also now very interesting is that you have the Azure Kubernetes service on the Stack Hub as well. 
So that means that you can use one of these Stack Hub appliances to run the Azure Kubernetes service, program against it, and keep in mind, this is on-prem, right? This is not the, you're not running these containers in the cloud, you're just running them through the Azure Stack hardware on-prem using all the advantages and the programmability of Azure Stack or the, of the Azure software. So if you were ever, you know, inclined to move out from this Azure Stack Hub appliance into the actual Azure Cloud, then you're already going to be using the same PowerShell, the same APIs, and so on, right? And then the finally, the last announcement for Azure Stack Hub is that now it also allows GPU partitioning using AMD GPUs. And I think we mentioned GPU partitioning at some point in the actual Datascape updates podcast because it's one of those really interesting new scenarios that are enabled by, by virtualization and, and especially with cloud and the fact that you can share fractions of GPUs with multiple users, right? Especially because GPUs nowadays are so powerful and the whole power of one GPU card might not be necessary for the task that you're doing, right? And then you can really take advantage of cost efficiency by sharing the GPU cards, right? So that's something coming out in the Azure Stack Hub. So basically you'll be able to load it up with GPUs and do GPU partitioning through the Stack Hub appliance. Cool. As you know, I, I've been a big fan of Azure Stack, I, I, I think. There's an excellent use case for bringing the cloud to disconnected and remote locations, mines, oil platforms, any sort of industry. You know, you, you realize as you travel around, I spend a lot of my free time exploring more remote areas of the of the United States. And, you know, you, you realize quickly as you leave some of the cities that cell coverage isn't what it you know, feels mm. like when you're when you're on the yeah. Interstate. When you're in the city, you think there's everywhere that you're not going to lose your signal anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you know, allowing industry to embrace the cloud and and more remote and disconnected use cases, I think, is is a gangster move by Azure. I, I think that's great. Another update that you mentioned uh, that has me really excited is Azure peering moving to GA. This is kind of neat. It's just another way to connect to Azure. Microsoft is looking into just making it as easy as they can and provide the best experience that they can to Azure customers. And this is not just benefiting Azure customers. It also impacts Office 365 or if you use Dynamics 365. And basically is a service that Microsoft has set up so that you can use your public internet but still get an optimized route to Microsoft services, right? So Microsoft's partnering with ISPs and internet exchange providers and software cloud interconnect providers so that you will get an optimized route to the Azure services, even if you are not using Express Route, right? So this is, some people might be familiar with the concept of Express Route, which is also known as Direct Connect and other cloud providers, which is an actual private circuit between you and the Azure services. Now, if you're a large corp and security is a big deal for you, you want a huge pipe, then you probably will go down the express route way. But peering service is kind of like a halfway between just regular internet routing and express route. So peering service is not a private circuit. It does go through the public internet, but it's an optimized path through the public internet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's a good solution for small, medium services that want that extra performance, lower latency to Azure, but they don't 
can't afford or they don't really need the full-blown express route. Right. And, and interestingly enough with this is uh, it also could be a new revenue stream for ISPs. If you think about, if you look at how grocery stores work, my understanding is the end, you know, grocery stores make as much money off of or a significant portion of their revenue off of end caps. So the the, pro, the chips at the end or the beer or whatever it is that they're promoing at the end of the aisle, that's or product yeah, yeah. placement is very expensive. And that's a major revenue. So, you know, for ISPs, this could become if AWS or Google or some other cloud wants to, you know, have the optimum route, then the ISPs may charge a premium for that. And it could be a new revenue source. I just hope that they share the the wealth and drop some data cap. Sorry, either remove or up data caps. But I don't know if that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, it's uh, a good it's a good point. It definitely. I mean, the, uh, this whole cloud revolution it, it does trickle into other pieces of the of the tech economy for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other update I really liked was in Azure Resource Manager, some new capabilities and templates and such. Yeah, there's a couple There's a couple of new capabilities that are, are pretty neat. So the first one is called the What If Analysis, and the other one is that you can have now deployment scripts. So the first I'll talk about deployment scripts, because that one is kind of like a no-brainer that it should have been there, is the fact that you can make a deployment script a piece, explicitly declarative piece of an ARM template, so that when the resource is created, the template itself will execute either a PowerShell or a Bash script. So that means that you can either embed even the code if you wanted to, if it's just like a little shit, like a little blurb of PowerShell, or if you want, you can just refer to it externally. So you can put your PowerShell in like an Azure Blob Storage account, and then you just refer to it through the code. Now. The more interesting update is this what-if analysis. So the what-if analysis, basically, you say, okay, this is my ARM template, and this is the deployment script and whatnot, and this is my resource group where I'm going to deploy it. And the what-if analysis, the nice thing about it is that it doesn't actually deploy it. What it does is that it plays out a simulation of deploying the ARM template, and then it gives you a report output of the resources that you deployed and how they interact with the other resources that are already in the resource group and the end configuration of them after all your steps in your ARM template, right? And obviously, if you're just deploying like one VM, then this might not be a huge deal and you might think like, oh, whatever, who cares? But as these cloud environments get more and more complex and also as the stakes get higher too, right? Because people are running mission-critical systems now on these environments, right? And every time you execute a template like this, well, it's basically a change, right? So any level of extra reliability that you can add to it, right? Catch issues before you actually cause them is good, in my opinion. And these deployments all, you know, they get more and more complex as well as time goes by. Mm -hmm. So this what if analysis is, is the feature that I think is really neat. Definitely, definitely good. A much nicer way to test your, your ARM templates. Yeah, better than just deploy and see who calls kind of thing. <laughs> That's my strategy. Let's shift gears and no update uh, with Warner is complete without a Cosmos uh, DB discussion. So why don't you walk us through yeah. there are a few updates you liked over That's there? Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of this product and just the, the capabilities that they keep adding to it. So we have a couple of, of really cool things. First of all is that Cosmos DB serverless is now available. And basically you'll be able to run your Cosmos DB and let it scale up and scale down by itself 
but it's completely serverless. So it's not like a, a Cosmos already had a an auto scale feature that mm -hmm. was introduced a few months ago. I remember discussing that. One, yeah, that one works with a baseline of resources. So the auto scale is more like, hey, I want at least 200 resource units and you can scale me up, you know, let's say up to 5X of that. And that's my auto scale boundaries. Serverless is basically, if I'm not querying anything, there are no connections, then just it will not build anything, right? It will only build literally for the RUs that you're using and you can set an upper boundary as well. But there's no, there's no minimum boundary of reservation because if you're not using anything, you're literally not gonna get charged. Now, of course, this also means that on first access, it will be slower, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, that's expected. That's the price you pay with any serverless database, right? Whereas it could be, you know, Aurora on Amazon or Azure SQL DB or Cosmos DB now. First access is always going to be slow because things are ramping up, right? But I mean, that's, that's just the nature of going serverless. And it's really not geared towards a production application that has to have low latency 24-7, right? In that case, you should definitely reserve some capacity. Serverless is for bursty workloads, things that people are not using. Development, for example, huge, right? Because a lot of people were complaining before. It's like Cosmos is, is a really neat product, but developing against it is turning into be kind of expensive for my team, right? Because we always have to have these collections deployed that cost this much money and whatnot, right? So for development, it's a, a really, really a useful skew, right? To just go serverless. So that's one of the Cosmos DB updates. The other Cosmos DB update is they added a few new capabilities that are really interesting. First, for example, is the fact that we can now do a point in time recovery. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't the case before. Before it was a snapshot based. So every so often Microsoft would take a snapshot and they would keep certain amount of I believe it was two snapshots at any single time. Mm -hmm. And if you had to recover, then you were at the mercy of, you know, when that snapshot was taken. So that's no longer the case. Now it's actual point in time recovery, which I, I think everybody would agree that that's a, a lot more peace of mind if you are putting mission critical data in Cosmos DB, well, that you have point in time restore is, is a big improvement, right? To be able to know that you can get to to that instead of just, you know, you might lose an hour of data because you were just a snapshotting. Right? Yeah, well, I would say that they've actually removed a barrier to entry. It, many, many customers or developers, you know, who wants to adopt something that you, you can't have this. It just, uh, to me, it'd be kind of unacceptable if it is truly mission critical. Maybe for sensor, yeah, not a problem. Yeah. But and it kind of, yeah. And it kind of also, when people start doing comparison areas, people always do comparison areas, even, even for things that are not, you know, apples to apples. Mm -hmm. For example, people will do Cosmos against SQL Server or SQL Database all the mm -hmm. time, right? Even though the use case is not exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And they'll figure this is a weakness in the product, right? Anyway, so at least it's one more thing that they can just say, you know, there's feature parity against one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And it looks like there were a couple of updates for Azure Database, specifically around MySQL and Postgres. Yeah, so this is, uh, again, to give people the peace of mind. Some people thought, you know, oh, Microsoft is doing these first-party open source database solutions, but it's just going to be backburn, you know, forgotten about in a couple of months. But they have continued to invest in them. So, for example, Azure Database for PostgreSQL now has a full database migration service experience. 
into Postgres hyperscale. So this is an actual company that Microsoft purchased that can do sharding, automatic sharding with PostgreSQL, very interesting stuff. And now they have a live database migration service for it. So to make it easier to adopt, we have Azure Active Directory authentication. So both engines, Postgres and MySQL can be fully integrated with Active Directory authentication. No need to manage passwords anymore. Mm -hmm. We have now a reserved instance pricing for both of these services as well. So if you think you're gonna be using it for a long period of time, you can get a very, very deep discount if you pick you know, one year or three year reservations. And they're gonna have, for example, data encryption with customer keys, that's coming very soon as well. And a private link, which is an option to have your database deployed without a public endpoint at all, just literally as a private resource in your virtual network. So that's coming. I think it's about time. (laughs) There's different mechanisms. So so the thing is, for example, with private link, first we had these things where, you know, everybody just had a public endpoint and it was protected by firewall. And then Microsoft introduced this idea of the service endpoint, which is basically, yeah, you, you have the same setup, but you can just deny everything on the firewall and just allow the specific virtual network through the service endpoint, right? That was kind of like the, the midway path. And that still had some some pluses because if you really wanted to, you could do that and just say, for example, use the public endpoint for specific use cases or things like that and the vast majority of the traffic through the service endpoint and things like this. But my guess is that probably due to some compliance reasons, so for some customers that just wasn't acceptable either and they wanted a full 100% privately deployed resource. So this is what private link gets you now. Yep. Yeah. I saw that they also changed the units of measurement to vCourse. Did I read that right? So the open source options are always in the vCore model. They they didn't really get uh, DTUs. DTUs are still alive in the SQL database space, mm-hmm. but in the open source is mostly vCore model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What about Azure SQL Edge? Yeah, so Azure SQL Edge is a very interesting product, and now it's public preview. It means anybody can go in and download it and give it a try, right? So for people that are not familiar with this, Azure SQL Edge is a small, and this is something that we, I believe we talked about in the past before, that mm-hmm. Microsoft has tried to do this in the past as well, to basically make a, a mini version of SQL Server, right? Mm-hmm. So it is a small deployment, small footprint container. I believe right now it's like 300 megs or something like that. A 300 meg container, it can run on not just x64, but it can also run on ARM devices. So it opens up to running on, on a lot more devices than just you know regular Intel, Intel powered x64 or AMD. And then the other thing is that it's not just SQL Server in a smaller footprint. It's very interesting. So they decided to add a couple of things to it that are not in actual SQL Server. So they they figured out there could be a couple of use cases in this small form factor engine that people just don't really worry about it in the in the bigger full SQL Server, especially about streaming data. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft has this service called Stream Analytics where you can run SQL queries against streaming data. And it's a separate service if you run it in Azure. It's completely separate from SQL Server itself. But in the Azure SQL Edge engine, they've actually embedded 
this SQL querying over stream capability into that as well. So Azure SQL Edge also has this streaming capability using the same construct of SQL that you would use with Azure Stream Analytics, you will be able to use it inside SQL Edge. So now obviously that begs the question is like, well, if they already did this work, how soon before they embed that streaming capability into Azure SQL database full or even into SQL Server itself, right? So very interesting, we'll see how this goes and we'll see if SQL Edge does get uh, adoption or not. Public preview right now. Right, and, and and I mean, well, I, I I hate to sound silly when I say this, but but streaming is really all all the rage. Air quotes. I know listeners can't see me, yeah. and you can, but you know, when I'm having data warehouse conversations or EDP conversations, you know, everybody wants to stream or access uh, unbounded uh, data. So I'm not surprised that that is being embedded in other products at all. And another topic that is one that won't go away, I'm sure it'll be on pretty much every update, is Azure Synapse. Yeah, so Synapse is now public preview, so anybody can go in now and create their own Synapse workspace. We have a full episode about Synapse, so I'm not going to talk much more than that. If you're listening, you can go check our, our archive, and I think it's just a couple of episodes behind maybe that yep. we talked about, or even the last one, I don't remember, that we talked about Azure Synapse you know, at length. So it is public preview. That's the biggest thing. Anybody can go in, they can go use it. 10 second pitch, Azure Synapse integrates the SQL engine with the Spark resources, big data into one big catalog, integrated also with ETL through Data Factory and visualization through Power BI. So the idea is, you know, provide one stop place. And now that you mentioned this about EDP, for example, next step is that they are going to integrate as well as stream analytics into Synapse. Right. And the idea here, of course, is that they are creating this service that is basically plug and play. You get a full blown data platform without having to worry about how all these pieces fit or having to mesh them together yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. You boot up a Synapse workspace and you configure it and you have a data lake, you have Spark, you have SQL and you have a streaming capabilities on it. And then on top of that, they announced this new thing, which I thought is pretty neat. It's called the Azure Synapse Link. And the first one to support it is Cosmos DB. <laughs> and what they're doing with the Azure Synapse Link is basically you're going to be able to link operational data stores to your Synapse workspace. And it's going to be a no ETL solution. So you just go declaratively on the portal and you say, hey, link my Cosmos DB database and the, the containers in it, the tables basically, to this Azure Synapse Link workspace. And then under the covers, the ETL will be handled for you. So you won't have to, you know, deploy your own pipelines and worry about, you know, is the ETL running or not? Like that is going to be automated as well. It is public preview right now, supported for Cosmos DB. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is fantastic because then you don't have to, pretty much you don't have to do anything to be able to get that operational data into your analytics space, right? So just a couple of clicks, you configure it, and then you can go into Synapse and query your Cosmos DB data from Synapse without impacting Cosmos DB at all. So they're completely detached, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm running these analytical queries against my Cosmos data, and now my Cosmos collection is gonna tank 
or I have to deploy these thousands more request units because now my data scientists are doing this analytical queries on my Cosmos data and it's impacting my Cosmos collection, right? That's not the case. It's completely detached, but it is near real time as well. So again, it's no ETL solution and it just gives you access to all that data immediately or well, not immediately, but almost immediately in your analytics workspace. And, and Cosmos DB is just the first step. And like, they've made it really clear that they want to do Synapse link mm -hmm. to pretty much all the other, like, you know, eventually in a, next, next target, of course, is Azure SQL database. And then it'll be for Azure PostgreSQL and MySQL. Probably they'll, a stream analytics I mentioned already, it's, they're working on integrating that as well. So, you know, it's gonna be really attractive for people to just say like, yeah, oh, we have to, you know, in, we wanna ingest this new SQL database data into our data lake. It's like, okay, well, let me just set up the Azure Synapse link for you and boom, you're done, right? Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah, and maybe also to Dynamics, Is that was that talked about? Yeah, probably, could be. Uh, I, I assume that actually that would be a great candidate too because it is a Microsoft Cloud offering, right? So it makes sense that, that they could do that through Dynamics, they could do it with that pretty much anything that is exposed in the cloud, right? Yeah, so yeah. I can see how they could do that to Dynamics, they could do that, for example, potentially they could do it to like a SharePoint list or something like that, right? So yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stuff they can do with that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's move over and talk about some of the AI updates. What was your favorite? Yeah, so they're always pushing new updates to the cognitive services. That's a Microsoft's kind of like plug and play AI services where you can use for speech, visual, and all sorts of different things. So there's a lot more that was deployed on speech, the speech to text, including 27 new locales. So many new regions are starting to bring in the cognitive services capabilities that didn't have it before. They have this new capability to do a pronunciation assessments, for example. So you can actually use it if you wanted to develop some sort of educational application and you can just use Microsoft's pronunciation analyzer to give people like feedback on how they should pronounce things or to pronounce more clearly and stuff like that. So that's pretty neat as well. They are adding new things. I think we covered in an episode that Cognitive Services is in the cloud, but you also can use it on-prem as containers that connect to the cloud, right? If you need to leave the data that needs to be analyzed through the Cognitive Services on-prem, then you don't have to move it back and forth to the cloud. You can just deploy this container service of cognitive services on-prem. So they are deploying more services into their cognitive services containers, language understanding, text analytics sentiments. The new versions of those are now in containers as well. They put in more capabilities into this feature. They have the Q&A maker. The Q&A maker is just parses existing content and then creates, you know, like, like it says, question and answers pairs that you can then use to either generate documentation or feed into a bot. For example, one of those common, like, how oh, can I help you today? Are you looking to do all these things kind of thing, right? So yeah, lots of, lots of new stuff there in the cognitive services. It's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting offering because again, it's, it's something that you don't really have to understand how all these really complex AI models are trained or developed or whatnot. They're just, you know, go ahead and consume type of approach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's, that's, that's really neat and, and a great way of getting some of these services in, into the wild and into widely used 
applications and such. So that's very cool. What about machine teaching moving into public preview? So this is very interesting. We talk a lot about machine learning, right? But uh, what is this machine teaching? And this is a project Microsoft has called Project Bonsai. And it is basically a project on developing the software framework and tooling to operate and manage actual autonomous systems. So we're not talking about, you know, computer vision where you're just doing, you know, some learning and you say like the age of the person on the PC kind of thing, right? This is about actually controlling through AI physical systems, right? We're talking about robot arms, things like this, right? Uh-huh. Uh, robot cameras that need to move, things that actually interact with with our physical reality, right? So the machine teaching is this, like I said, this new framework and software that they're going to be putting in public preview where you can specify the developers or the engineers can specify the desired outcomes or the behaviors into the actual physical system and you can put a safety criteria on it and then you can program it into the physical system and then it also gives you the tooling to understand how these AI agents are arriving to the behaviors that they're doing and also to be able to debug when they're not. Why you know a particular system is not behaving in the way that the trainer would have expected, right? And this could be, again, something that could be deployed in a factory, in a lab uh, for security reasons and stuff like that, right? So very interesting because, again, it's something that we usually, nowadays, when we talk about these, we don't really talk about the actual physical things, right? A lot of the machine learning is towards just creating a program on the computer that will give you a recommendation or a prediction or something like that. But there's a huge, obviously, a huge part of AI that is about actual autonomous, real physical systems, right? Right. So this is Microsoft's Microsoft foray into that area that usually has been, you know, very, very specialized companies that just deal with that, that create software like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then a new one for the podcast, Azure Maps Private Atlas. Yeah, so Azure Maps is just Azure's Maps as a service. And Private Atlas is something I thought was kind of neat. It's just basically you can create your own maps and annotate them in your Azure, uh, using the Azure Maps API and being able to feed data into them. And then anybody in your org can reuse those maps. So, for example, if you had like, let's talk about, you know, something like a university campus, right, where you do have multiple buildings, roads, different rooms inside the building, so many things that you would want to map. And you don't want to just, you know, use the, let's call it the the, the Google map image from the satellite. Maybe mm-hmm. you have better images from your right. own things or from your own surveying or your own blueprints, anything, right? And then you can use this, all the capabilities that are built into the Azure maps for geolocation and tagging and display and uh, access control and being able to feed data into them to see real time things, all of that you'll be able to use it. But all of those maps will be, as the name says, in your private atlas, right? They're not public information. They're just from your sub, you'll be able to enrich them with all the Azure map info and Azure Maps APIs, but they are part of your own business atlas, let's call it, right? So I thought that's pretty neat as well. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You know, when I was prepping for the podcast, I was trying to see the use case, but just in discussing it with you, you know, I'm thinking, let's say you're Boeing and you have a huge, I don't want to call it campus, but factory 
miles long and you want to catalog and have maps for your employees and maybe even have them interactive, but you don't want to make them public. I think that something like that would be a great use case. Yeah. Any big, like I said, big corporations that have, you know, giant campuses, universities, mm-hmm. right? Big, uh, even like if we talk about things like government and defense, like, you know, there's some, some big compounds where they do all sorts of testing, manufacturing, things like that, right? Yeah. 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 That's, that's pretty cool. And I'm feeling a little bit old as we shift and talk about .NET number five. It's really an announcement of an announcement, right? And yeah, so yeah, .NET, .NET 5 is now in preview number four. And the, the announcement of the announcement is that they, they believe general availability will be coming in November. And to understand the importance of .NET 5, you kind of have to go through the history of .NET, right? If people remember, .NET was created in probably, what was it, the early 2000s? Yeah. As Microsoft's answer to Java, right? And the idea was that we're going to create this language runtime, right? So you will be able to develop in the C-sharp and the infamous BV.net. And you would compile into the, the CLR, the common language runtime in .NET, and the actual CLR executable eventually would run everywhere, just as Java does, because they would develop these machines, these you know, virtual .NET machines to install in, in any sort of platform. Now, that, that dream never materialized, and .NET stayed as just the Windows .NET, right? There was never a Linux runtime for .NET. There was never a mobile or, well, web was running ASP.NET, but they were still running in Windows servers, right? It wasn't running on Linux servers, for example. You know, let's fast forward in time now. Azure is here. The cloud is a huge thing. Satya is the CEO. And SQL Server is on Linux, right? And there's a huge push from Microsoft to actually deliver on this multi-platform uh, vision, right? So then Microsoft created what's known as .NET Core. .NET Core is basically they took all the main things about .NET that don't actually depend on the Windows kernel, let's call it, or the APIs that are specific to Windows, and they made a, finally a version of .NET that is multi-platform. Right now, I believe it runs Linux, Mac OS, and Windows, of course. So that is there is right now .NET Core. You can do this. It's multi-platform. So the idea is now we have two versions of .NET, right? We have .NET Core, and we have the full let's call it legacy .NET framework that really only runs on Windows. So with .NET 5, this is where they are switching the strategies now. So with .NET 5, there's not going to be a .NET Core or a .NET whatever number on Windows. Instead, it's just going to be .NET 5. And .NET 5 will be what is known as .NET Core, which is what it should be, is the multi-platform piece. And then if you need things that are only for Windows, then you will import a runtime that's .NET 5 slash Windows, let's say, mm-hmm. right? And then if you need specific things that are only for Linux, for example, if that were to exist, it, it doesn't exist, but let's say they needed to develop something like that, mm-hmm. then you would only need to import that specific module of .NET 5 Linux or .NET 5 iOS, .NET 5 Android, I mean, right, whatever it would be, right? So it's that is why it's a, it's a big deal because they're switching from like, you know, the real multi-platform is no longer going to be core because it, it makes it sound as if it's like a flavor of .NET. Right. But really, the multi-platform is what .NET should have been from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. So it's getting rebranded to say, look, the core is the actual .NET. And if we need to support things that are not multi-platform, then they will be called out as 
you know, a module that's .NET something, right? Right. And and then are they not also getting a multi-platform UI for development? Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's part of the multi-platform announcements is that .NET is also going to provide now the capability or they're going to, they are building it right now for .NET to provide the capability of building multi-platform GUI experiences, right? So let's say you're building a desktop app, then you're going to be able to build a desktop GUI experience that will run on Linux, Mac, and Windows. And you will only have to develop it once, right? And then the runtime will figure out how to make it a reality in any of these three different operating systems. And if you wanted to develop for mobile instead, then the same thing, you would develop it once, and then the runtime will figure out how to develop it for iOS or Android, and you would just deploy and let the, you know all the magic under the covers do it differently depending on the platform that you're on. So the promise here as well is that not just uh, .NET could be used for building utilities, software, and server APIs, you know, like ASP.NET and all this thing, but that you could use .NET for actual graphic experience building, right? For real GUIs and, and apps and still have it be truly multi-platform as well. Okay, long time coming. And definitely if they want to be multi-platform, the it's a move they have to make. And it looks like there were also some Azure Kubernetes updates. Yeah, so Azure Kubernetes has some new capabilities. The biggest capability is that now the AKS is going to support Windows server containers because Windows server containers are now a GA as well. So that's very interesting, right? So we are going to be able to run them in Azure Kubernetes services. Mm -hmm. Then there's other things that are now going to be supported in Kubernetes services that they were not before, for example, the fact that you can deploy a cluster that is completely private. So same thing as like, kind of like what we were mentioning before about the private link with the database services, this is the same thing. You'll be able to put your AKS cluster inside your virtual network, completely isolated from, from the rest of, of Azure. And you will also be allowed to use managed identities. So managed identities is, it has a different name depending on the cloud provider. I believe some cloud providers call it service accounts and things like this, which basically what it means is that you give an identity to an actual cloud resource, and then you give permissions to the cloud resource instead of giving permissions to an individual or a group in your directory, right? So in this case, you, for example, if you have a, an AKS service that runs containers that are all about doing work you know, we're just talking about cognitive services. Let's, let's say they run them to be evaluating and scoring some images that you have on storage. Then you can just give permissions to the AKS cluster to have access to that storage, right? No actual humans other than maybe your administrator would need access to that data. You could just give it directly to the AKS service instead. Right. So that not only does tighten security, but also simplifies management a lot, because if somebody leaves, you don't need to worry about their permissions or if usually when you have keys or passwords, you need to rotate them right for security every so often. That requires a change. In this case, Azure simply, you know, knows that this resource is who it is and it knows what it's allowed to do. And it's all managed for you. Right? Cool. That, that's a that's a neat update. And speaking of updates on that, that topic, I know there were many, many more, and this is not to take away from them, but this is a really neat set of, of updates. No no real like game changer necessarily, like new, new feature. I guess we kind of got Synapse a little while ago, 
the tide has changed here where we have talked about this before as well in the podcast is that the release cycles for the cloud are so aggressive that there's almost never huge game changers that come out all at once, right? Because everything is always released almost on a monthly cadence and the feedback cycle now is a lot earlier, right? They will release something, even if it's in not 100% feature-proofed, they will release it just to get it out in the wild, get people to use it, provide feedback, break things, and then iterate on it, right? So we're gonna see less and less of this, you know, amazing new thing coming out of nowhere type of announcements. And I believe, yeah, the industry at large is moving towards a lot of incremental new things, or they'll announce big ideas. And then, you know, the big idea will just be the announcement. They won't have like actual something to, to, to do with it until, you know, sometime later. That right. also happens quite a bit nowadays. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, that's all the time we had today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is uh, helping others to find us. And you can do that by writing a short, honest review on something like iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or maybe just telling a friend or maybe even tweeting about the episode. As always, we do love your feedback, and that includes ideas for new episodes. And you can email me anytime at datascape at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.